So let's talk about that word. Uh, we just sang it, and we heard it in the psalm. And the word I'm talking about is holy. And I'm guessing that having just sang it and read it in the prayer, the, the psalm, there's different feelings in the room, different associations, different connections to this word. I'm guessing like some have some kind of positive uh, feeling or association or some depth of meaning around it. Uh, I'm guessing others have different feelings or experiences or connections uh, to this word. Maybe it's been a part of other experiences in different places or something like that. Or maybe this word has been used in your life by other people. And maybe when other people use this word in your life, it was really life-giving or maybe it wasn't. But I thought um, before I go any further into this, we would just check in, uh, open this up, and see if anybody wants to tell us, when you hear the word holy, what do you think or feel or remember? Like, what comes to mind? What do you sense in your body? What's going on there? Anybody want to raise your hand and just tell us, like, what comes to mind when you hear the word holy? Yeah. Someone or something that is set apart. Someone or something that is set apart. Yeah. Untouchable. Untouchable. Yeah. What else? Uh, yeah. Unworthy. Unworthy. Okay. Whenever I felt it was holy, it was like close to God, whether it was a person or a place. Right on. Whenever you felt anything was holy, whether it was a person or a place, they were close to God. Yeah, right on. What else? Yeah. Um, I would say peace. Peace. Yeah, right on. What else? Yeah. Unique. Unique. Right on. Yeah. Uh, let me say it again in case you didn't hear it. A perfection that you despair of attaining to, like no hope of you forgetting there, but also the kind of a comfort because if there's a God who's not perfect, that's a bigger problem. Yeah, right on. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Right on. So there's a comfort piece, which is the idea of God being holy, but there's a tension, because when you think about church, religious settings, there's been the sense that you can't be, you're not good enough. Yeah. Anybody relate to that? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Uh, there's this really wide range, right, of like some really positive stuff. Um, there's some negative stuff. There's some tension. Uh, I heard on Thursday, one person used the word fear. Like this word makes them afraid. Um, also heard somebody talk about like a list of rules, like, uh, you know, do all these things so that you can be holy, right? Um, I've been wrestling with this word because I, I feel like it's one of those words that can show up in religious spaces without us like thinking about what it means. And that's like, that's really hard for me. So I really want to like, I want to dig in and figure out what these words mean the way we use them and what they mean in our tradition. And so I was working on this word a while ago and I was trying to figure out why was I feeling ambivalent toward the word. I was kind of conflicted about it. It's like, it's supposed to be a good word, but I'm not sure it feels like a good word. And so I did what you always do when you're trying to figure this out. And I created a line graph, right? <laughs> so this was me um, just trying to like externalize, right? Because you have feelings and thoughts and you're like, what is going on, right? So I asked myself, if I just drew a line on a piece of paper and at one end is like you're holier, 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 you're moving toward holy, and at the other end you're moving away from holy, I was trying to figure out like what did I sort of um, 
breathe in growing up around this idea. And one of the ways, if I, if I really listened to all the messages that I got about this word, one of the ways I was taught to really understand this was basically, the, the more you go toward holy, the more you abstain from. And the more you go toward unholy, the more you indulge in. Does that ring a bell for any of you, right? So like on this particular way of defining it, it's like, you know, maybe if you're kind of holy, you don't watch R-rated movies, right? But if you're really holy, you don't even touch PG-13. Know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> or maybe, maybe like, if, if this is the whole construct, then maybe if you're holy, you don't drink alcohol. And if you're really holy, you are never found in the presence of it, right? You'd never set foot in a bar or something like that, right? We, we could go on and on about that being one of the ways that this word can get worked out, right? But there's a few problems with that way of working this out. Like one would be that if, if this is really it, and I'm not saying it is, but if this is really it, well then on this framework where the holier you are, the more you abstain from, and the more you indulge in, the less holy you are, in that framework, I can be holier than Jesus, right? Because I, I can surely figure out things that Jesus was willing to partake in that I could just opt out of. And if that's really all there is to it, then I can make myself holier than Jesus. And another problem with this breakdown is Jesus himself seems to reject it. And let me show you an example of what I'm talking about. So in Luke 7, Jesus um, and his cousin, John the Baptist, are both receiving criticism. Now, if you remember this, John the Baptist was like the prophet that went out into the wilderness and told everyone the kingdom of God is coming. And then he pointed at Jesus and he said, that's what I was talking about. And John the Baptist was known for what you might call an ascetic lifestyle. Like he was really, really strict. He just didn't indulge in like anything. So he didn't drink and he fasted and he lived out in the wilderness and he you know, rejected any kind of luxury in his life. And then you have Jesus who's out there like partying with people and having meals and drinks with people and doing all this other stuff. And they're both getting heat for it. So watch what Jesus does in Luke 7. He tells these critics, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. <laughs> and the son of man, that's Jesus referring to himself, came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Which I think, among other things, is a way of saying, you're looking at John the Baptist and me, and you see very different behaviors, but we're actually part of the same thing. Wisdom is expressing itself through both of these lives. Like, the same thing seems to be going on in, in both of these stories, even though the behaviors look pretty different. Well, whatever you do with that, it certainly doesn't work on this continuum, does it? It doesn't really work if the definition of holy is just abstain from, don't touch the impure, unclean things. And the definition of unholy is just that you do the unclean, impure things. Like it just doesn't really work out that way, right? In fact, sometimes I think, depending on where we've been or how we use it, sometimes the word holy can be a really small word, like too small. Sometimes the way that the word gets used, it, it gets used, it's too small for what it's pointing toward, and it's too small for what's going on with Jesus because you can't actually fit him into it the way that we use it sometimes. And sometimes it's too small for you because sometimes the word holy is used to build a really rigid box that you can't fit in and I can't fit in unless I maybe like contort myself in what I would actually call a really unholy way to try to fit into the box that is built with that word sometimes. Sometimes holy, especially if it's used against you or if it's used to control you or if it's used to like have a power play in a religious setting, it's just not a big enough word. And sometimes when it's used for God, I feel like it's not a big enough word. But the problem is you can't get away from the word. 
Because it's like all over the scriptures. And when the scriptures speak of holy, I don't actually get the feeling of a small word. I get the feeling of a really big word. Let me show you a few of the examples of how the scripture uses it. So in the 8th century, there's a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah is one of the Israelites, and he's in Jerusalem. And Isaiah has this sort of transcendent vision, this epiphany of God. And he describes it. And this is in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, he says, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphim. That's a word for these animal-like sort of angelic creatures in the Jewish imagination. These seraphim had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You get that big feeling, right? That expansive sense that this word is pointing toward a mystery um, that is bigger than our language, that at least in this moment, it's a good word for a vision of that reality which lends its being to all of us. That, that, that thing that's underneath everything that lends life and energy to everything that we see. The, the word there is God and then the holy is wrapped around that word, right? pretty big uh, reference there. Now, in the Bible, um, God's not the only thing that's holy, actually. Holy also shows up with regard to other things. So, for example, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 2 is the first usage of the word holy in the Bible. And the first time the word holy is used in the Bible, it doesn't refer to God. It refers to something else. I'll show you here. In Genesis 2, this is the end of that creation poem that begins the Bible, where God is doing all of God's creating. And at the end of all that creating, we read, Uh, chapter 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So in this moment, holy is describing a time, a day of the week. This is the creation of Sabbath in the Jewish life, but it's describing time as holy. Now, I don't know what your relationship is to the Jewish Sabbath, but I suspect you've had moments in time where the best word you could come up for what you were experiencing in time is holy. Something about that day, that moment, that spot on the calendar. Maybe you didn't see it coming, but you just, you happened to find yourself around the table with the people that you love most, and something magical happened, which is all the cell phones were left in their rooms, And all of a sudden, you're actually together with one another, and stories are being shared, and people are being vulnerable, and connection is being forged, and this love sort of wells up at the table, and you look back on that evening later, and you would say something like, that was a holy time. There was a moment in time that felt sort of different, almost like time expanded or dilated, and in time, we could feel ourselves a part of something that's maybe more than meets the eye, or more than the everyday. So in the Bible, uh, holy is a, is a word for God, that most expansive of mysteries. It's also a word for time, those moments when we seem to find ourselves drawn into that. Maybe, maybe it wasn't a, a meal, but maybe there's like a day on the calendar that just feels different for you. I don't know, maybe it's an anniversary or a birthday, or, or maybe it's um, one of those moments that shows up in the Christian calendar, like Easter or Good Friday, but uh, the scriptures speak of time as having the capacity to carry the holy. Now, it's not just God, and it's not just time, though, that the scriptures speak of when it comes to the holy. They also speak of place. So in the book of Exodus, uh, God has brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and he's given them the Ten Commandments, and the whole Charlton Heston thing has just happened. 
And then they're getting more instructions about how they're going to live their life together as a community. And God tells them, you're going to build a tabernacle, which is sort of a, a portable worship space, a portable sanctuary, a tent that will go with them through the wilderness. And it'll be inside that tabernacle where they conduct their worship of God and where they know the presence of God. And in the instructions for building the temple, we read this in Exodus 26. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The Ark there is a wooden box, basically, that's adorned. Uh, within it, uh, they will store the Ten Commandments on tablets and other artifacts of their experience with God in the wilderness, like the manna, the food that God gave them in a jar. So th there's this, this box that contains within it artifacts of God's faithfulness to them, and it's adorned. And then when they sort of set this whole thing up, they'll, they'll know God's presence sort of resting on that in a special way. And so then we read here, uh, hang the curtain from the class and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain, and the curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. So now we have like gradations of holy place, right? Like tiers or levels. Now, I don't know what you want to do with that today, with like that in the tabernacle. And as far as I know, nobody here has actually like been in that tabernacle. If you have, let us know. Um, but you've probably also sensed where place can carry a, a feeling or an awareness or a knowledge of the holy, where um, you just find your feet on a certain bit of ground and something about what you see around you, what your senses are taking in, or maybe the history of that place, something that has happened there. Or, or maybe it's not that your senses, like your five senses are taking in anything, and it's not that there's any history, but maybe you just feel that sort of radar in your chest that picks up on some of these frequencies. You just sense there's something here. This place has a capacity to draw me beyond itself into the depth that is like beyond any given place. And so maybe you've had places that feel sort of holy to you. I know there are places in my personal history that I can go back to um, that have that strange sense of the holy, and they're, they're diverse. Like, I can go back to the summer camp that I went to as a kid, where we'd sit out by the campfire, and we'd look up at the stars, and we'd sing worship songs, and it still has that kind of hum within it when I go back to it. Uh, but I can also think of the building in town that I live just several blocks from now, uh, which uh, I stayed 10 days in when it was a psych ward, when I was going through a mental health challenge in college. And I drive by it all the time. And then I've um, been there to visit other people, members of this community or people I know and love who are going through a really difficult time and are hospitalized there. And it's different in some ways than summer camp. <laughs> but it was a place where a lot of profound healing happened for me. And then I've been there... Um, and sense the vulnerability of other people in that place, and there's something sacred about vulnerability. When we are sort of raw and open, right? There is uh, friends in this community whose uh, baby boy was born with really, really, really complicated uh, problems, and then they spent six months uh, living at Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. And I would drive down there every Friday to spend a few hours with them during the six months that they were there. And I came to think of the number on that hospital room like in my mind, it didn't have a hospital room number. In my mind, it said something like holy of holies because of the vulnerability and the bravery and the love of these parents that I kept seeing. I would just like literally cross the threshold into that room and like sense um, something like a holy place. And so the scriptures speak not just of God's self being holy, but they speak of time 
being holy, and they speak of place being holy. But that's not all. They don't just speak of God and time and place. They also speak of people being holy. So Leviticus 19, for example, God is speaking through Moses to the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that's not just like some Old Testament thing, not just some super old thing. It gets carried forward into the New Testament into a word written specifically for the church in the book of 1 Peter, where 1 Peter writes and says, just as he that's God who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Sometimes holy is a really small word, the way it gets used, the way maybe it gets used against you, or like as a power play. But man, when you like leaf through these pages, you sense this is an expansive and important sort of essential word that we can't get rid of because without this kind of language, we're going to have a really hard way narrating our journey into life with God and into life with God that meets us in place and time and bodies and lives. The scriptures want to hold on to this word. And I think we're going to find out that we want to hold on to it too. It's interesting uh, that you can track the way that we use words through one of my favorite tools called the Google Ngram Viewer. And I've used this before. If you've been around sometimes, uh, you'll see us using it because it's just such a helpful way to think about language. Because, of course, the things that we say and the way that we say them have a lot to do with what we think and the world that we are building, right? So if you can track the things that we are saying and the way that we're saying them, you might learn something about the world that we are building. And you can plug the word holy into this tool, and you can figure out as a percentage of all the words that are written in any given year, written and published, that is. I don't think Google has access to your handwritten journal yet. But um, like all, all of the words that Google can get their hands on, which is a lot of words, right? They'll track and they'll just find out like, like how, how, how frequent in all the words was that word in our usage. You can plug holy in over the last 200 years and this is the graph that you get. So it's interesting, right? Like, and this probably isn't that surprising. In the 1800s, there's a lot of action going on with the word holy, right? And just as we sort of cross over into the late 1800s to the 1900s, it plummets and it just sort of hangs out there along the bottom for a while. It really dips down like in the 80s. I don't know what that's about. Uh, <laughs> might have been the hair. I don't know. Uh, but then what's interesting to me is you see this sort of sharp tick back upward just in the last few years. And I, I haven't done a deep enough dive on this to know exactly what's going on there, but I think it at least suggests the possibility that this word holy is a word that we need, that it's naming something essential for our experience, and we can sort of distance ourselves from it for a while, but it will like have a way of coming back to us, right? And I think we might be living in a moment right now where this word wants to come back to us and where we might want to like do something with it. Now, let's acknowledge, there's lots of questions that we could ask about this word. And everything I've just done has done almost nothing to answer any of these questions. <laughs> but like, we might be asking, for example, like, what is holiness? Just that basic question. What is this saying or describing? What is it getting at when it gets used so much? Right? Or we could ask this. Is it something we do? Like, do we do holiness? Or is it something God does? Or is it something we feel or experience, like that radar on your chest who just like, senses holiness in this place or this person? Or is it something we just are? Like we just are holy? Or is it something God is? Or all of the above? Or is it something else entirely? Are we missing the point altogether here, right? We could ask this. Is holiness something to be afraid of? I know like I've been in some settings where the, the way that this all sort of worked out, it was sort of like 
The holiness of God is the scariest part of God. It's the terrifying part. But also, you need to like get in there and get your hands on it. Like, as if to say, in that closet over there, there are some like radioactive nuclear like power rods in there, and they will kill you, but go on in there. Like, is that, is that what this is about? Is, is, seriously, has anybody ever had that kind of feeling around this word, the way people talk about it? Yeah, a little bit of that. Or is holiness something to be excited about? Like, maybe you felt it when we sang about it today. Or maybe you've been reading the scriptures or meditating on the way that they speak of God being holy or us being holy, and you have felt like a warming, um, positive sort of sensation around that word. Or is it just something we can ignore? <laughs> is it just time to, like, move on and find other language for this? Or how about this? Is holiness just morality wrapped in God language? Is that all this boils down to? Like, is, is holiness just do good things and don't do bad things and don't dirty up your life and don't get your hands dirty? Like, so just sort of a, a list, like a code of behavior or ethics, and then we just kind of wrap it up in theological language to make it more sort of energized? Or, or is there more going on here, right? Or how about this? What does Jesus have to do with holiness? What does Jesus think about holiness? And how should students of Jesus approach holiness? And I'd say really this captures as much of, as any of this, like our heart as a community, because this is a Jesus community who's like here to kind of follow Jesus into this way of being in the world. And so I think it's really big for us to ask, like, what does Jesus have to do with holiness? What does Jesus think about holiness? And how should students of Jesus approach this, right? Now, I raise all of this uh, because of the season that is right around the corner, and later this week, um, followers of Jesus around the world in many different sort of forms of church will all turn their attention to a season that we call Lent. And really, um, I think this holiness idea is going to be a big and important idea for our community as we move through this season. And sometimes I've made the mistake of waiting till we are in these seasons to talk about these seasons, but then you might feel like you're on your heels a little bit, right? Like, like, could have told me it was coming, right? So, so, so instead, we're sort of opening this up today to talk about uh, a theme for us this Lenten season. And now uh, a little sort of primer, primer, uh, an introduction to Lent. Um, because I know not everybody here has had a lot of experience with this season, and we've had different experiences with it, right? So Lent, of course, is uh, the word for the season in the life of the church that begins uh, this year, uh, right around the corner, and helps us make our way toward Holy Week. There's that word again, holy, and Easter. Uh, Lent, the word, literally just comes from the Old English for lengthen, because uh, Lent occurs uh, in the first half of the year, and in the Northern Hemisphere, the days get longer. Thank you. That was, that was the easy one. Yeah, the days get longer. Yeah, so that's actually sort of the basic meaning of this. Although some might argue there might be something deeper about naming and, and locating this season of spiritual attention and awakening as the light grows. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? Yeah. So there's something to that, perhaps. Um, Lent is uh, a season that has deep historical roots. And so if we go way, way, way back to the very beginnings of the church, it became the practice of the church early that new converts to the faith would get baptized on Easter. So Easter is the big day when people who've said, I want to be a part of this. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be brought into this. Easter is the moment when they get baptized. But leading up to their baptism, there would be a season of preparation. So first you have new converts going through a season of fasting and learning on their way to their baptismal vows. But then eventually what happens is the church realizes, first of all, the people being baptized on Easter aren't just being baptized for them. It's a reminder for all of us who have already said yes to this to renew our commitment to it. 
And so the baptism of new converts on Easter becomes something like rededicating and renewing your vows in the marriage or something like that, right? So they have that sense. And then, of course, the other thing that happens is they do a pretty darn good job of evangelizing the entire European continent, depending on what you mean by good job. But the Roman Empire and the church, they kind of get together on this thing, and before you know it, everybody is Christian, or in some sense of the word, right? And so all of a sudden, they look around, and there's nobody left to baptize. <laughs> so then you have Easter as this important day, and it becomes the awareness of the church at that point that, well, maybe we shouldn't have opted out on this season to begin with. Maybe it was for all of us each year to choose a season of intentional sort of preparation as we make our way toward that central remembrance in the Christian calendar uh, that we call Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter. And so you have this 40-day journey, which ends up being more than 40 days because Sundays don't count. Uh, that's the way that actually goes. Uh, but the 40 days becomes a season of intentional preparation and return and awakening and uh, proactive sort of movement toward Holy Week. And we as a church uh, have found a lot of meaning in this season, and we want to take advantage of it. And this year, I think holy, like, what does the word mean? Do we care about it? What do we do about the ways it's been used to abuse people and been made too small? What about the ways that it's this big and expansive word that we, we can't live without if we were going to enter into the mystery of God in our life? We, we want to probe all of that, but we also want to take advantage of the season as it's been traditionally practiced. And so uh, I'm telling you this now, so if, if you want to get in on it, you can decide now to get in on these ways of moving through Lent that many followers of Jesus will enact this year. So three uh, sort of traditional practices that have been a part of Lent. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Sounds like a good time, huh? <laughs> Hang with me for a moment. Um, prayer. Intentional uh, practices of prayer are traditionally part of the Lenten season. Now, we've said this before, I know that there are many in this community for whom prayer is a difficult word. Uh, for some, it's never really been a real point of connection. Uh, for others, it's part of a previous package of religious experiences that you, you've really like said, no, that's, there's some problems there. But it's like prayer is kind of stuck back there in that sort of package of experiences. Some uh, wonder, why would I pray if I can't sense whether it's changing anything? Or I don't know what I do about whether God, like, does things in response to all of that, right? I, I get there's a lot of questions there. Um, but I also just know that you can't find like a reputable spiritual teacher, like in any tradition, <laughs> who won't tell you that some form of prayer is going to be central to who we are becoming and how we are moving toward God in our lives. Like it's just really hard to get there without some form. Here's the good news though. There's lots of forms of prayer. Like there may be as many forms of prayer in the world as there are people in the world, at least, right? Um, there's some really um, traditional ones that I think are fantastic. Like for some during the Lenten season, you might just decide that, that for the Lenten season, that after your alarm goes off and before you go into your day, that you, you might just turn to that, that prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. And even just spending five minutes sort of slowly moving through those uh, words that Jesus gives us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, give us what we need today. Help us live with grace with one another. It's a really beautiful, succinct little prayer. And you might make that just a, a part of your mornings and just kind of see what happens with it, right? Others, maybe it'll be in the evening when you, when you call it a night at the end of the day, and rather than one more episode on Netflix from bed, which is not bad, uh, but maybe you'll, maybe you'll turn to a psalm, one of those prayers in that prayer book in the middle of the Bible, and just let the words in that text sort of um, help you with something like prayer, right? Maybe it's not words on a page at all. Uh, I know that, for example, uh, one of my mother's forms of prayer is baking. 
And I actually, I really mean that. My brother and I figured out growing up that like if we came home from school and my mom had baked like 12 pies that day and it wasn't November, would be like, mom, what's wrong? Who's hurting, right? And like, like really, like if someone she loved was going through something, maybe they were in a surgery or having a difficult procedure, sometimes like getting hands in the dough, like rolling it out and forming those pies is a way of praying with your body, right? Or what about um, music? I've got a really dear friend, one of my closest, who um, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I think he probably like, I don't know about the God thing at all right now these days. Um, definitely wouldn't call myself a Christian these days. And we, we talk about this a lot, really all the time. And um, what I've sensed from him, and I think he's basically said as much, is that even though I'm not sure about hardly any of that, like my soul still kind of wants to pray. Like something wants to to get out, you know, but I'm not sure how to do it or where to direct it. And uh, this friend of mine was, uh, was meeting uh, with someone who was kind of helping him think about his life right now and helping him look forward. And uh, my friend was describing all of this sort of challenge that he's been facing. And this person he was meeting with uh, gave him this really profound and beautiful gift. And the way I heard my friend describe it to me was that my friend had been clear, like, you know, music's a huge part of his life. It's not just entertainment for him, it's passion. And it, like, it means the world to him, and he'll, he'll give time and attention to it. And this person meeting with him just gave him the gift of saying, you've been talking about prayer. Who said that wasn't your prayer? You know, when you shut everything out and you let some beautiful sort of work of art elicit like the depths of who you are and what you were longing for, like, who said that's not prayer? And this friend sharing that with me, like, grew really choked up. Um, and what a gift it was to maybe rediscover that it was there all along, you know? I know people for whom this spring, gardening will be prayer, right? As the weather warms up and the ground thaws and you get your hands into the dirt. Like, guys, this is not like some fringe idea, right? The idea that you would get your hands into the soil where God is calling life forth and doing the very kinds of things that he calls us to do in Genesis 1, the idea that that would be prayer, I mean, that's about as like orthodox down the middle as you can get, Right? But maybe you haven't had a community celebrate that and say, of course that is praying when you get your hands in the dirt. So I don't know what it'll look like for you, but I think prayer is like a, an essential way of attending to what holiness is trying to name in the world. Prayer in particular, like an awareness of, of, of God and how holiness names that mystery. Now, I know we haven't even told you what holiness is yet. I get it. I'm saying like, uh, rather than us doing everything in our heads first and talking and having a bunch of ideas and then later trying to enact some of this stuff, like what if you just started with the enacting? What if you got your, your body, your life, your time into it? And then as a community, we can work out together what it means as you try it, right? So I'm saying like, start praying as Lent comes around this week and then we'll figure it out later, okay? <laughs> we'll work on some of the details, but prayer um, certainly uh, would be a way of attending to the holiness of God whatever that word means. <laughs> and then fasting. Um, fasting is a traditional practice. Uh, in, in its sort of more formal sense, it really does usually mean giving up food or drink of some form. Although there are sort of larger uh, abstentions that you might choose for the season. You might give up Netflix or you might give up your Starbucks or whatever, right? Um, but I think that the beautiful thing about fasting is it doesn't have to be a way of shaming yourself. It doesn't have to be a way of reminding yourself um, that you're bad. Um, most spiritual practices do help us confront our weaknesses. That's, that's helpful, right? That's a good growing thing. But what if fasting is actually a way of attending to and honoring the holiness in you? 
Like, what if you look at your life and you ask, are there any ways I'm expending myself or consuming things that aren't really honoring the holiness that God has given me, the, the sacredness of my own life? And what if I intentionally got rid of something so that I could attend to that sacred core that is at the heart of my own life that I so easily miss when I'm overfed and overentertained? Like, that'd be a really beautiful thing to do, right? Um, and the other thing about this fasting thing is traditionally in Lent, fasting and almsgiving, and by almsgiving, you could mean in general sort of intentional generosity toward your neighbors in need. Well, one of the beautiful things is that the very act that you're going to offer to attend to your own holiness, giving up something, is going to create more room or capacity for you to attend to the holiness of your neighbor, like in the same act, right? So maybe you give up Starbucks for Lent. These days, that's going to save you like 13 bucks a day, right? So that's an act which, which you do to attend to the holiness of your own life, the sacredness, the high-stakes nature of your very own life, because you are more than a consumer, right? But then that very act gives you, like, a lot of money that you could give to someone in need, that you could give to some uh, hurting place in the world as you attend to the holiness of somebody else with your generosity. You see how these all kind of begin to hold together a little bit? And so my pitch to this community would be, like, let's try it. Let's try a Lenten season of prayer and fasting and almsgiving of some sort. Let's see these through the lens of holiness, um, and let's work out together what that means over the next several weeks. Now, if you're new here, you might not know that one of our mantras is practices, not performances. And the good news about that is we don't think you have anything to prove, period. You don't have anything to prove to us. You don't have anything to prove to God. You don't like, have anything to prove to yourself, I don't think. So you can take that sort of performance anxiety pressure out of the equation, and then you're free to try stuff. Like, try prayer and fail. Great. You tried it, right? Try fasting and figure out four days in that you hate what you decided to give up. Great, right? Um, try being generous to a neighbor in need, and you might do it the awkward way first, right? You might find out that the gift you have wasn't wanted. I don't know. Um, you may end up being able to give less than you had hoped that you would be able to be give, or you might wonder whether what you have to offer matters. Those are all really natural experiences, but just try it because you got nothing to prove. Isn't that great? And then, like from that experience, we can feel our hearts getting stretched and grown up a little bit in this season. Um, we'll also, as a church community, a couple of ways that we will honor the the Lenten season is that every week, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the Eucharist, the table of Jesus, will be part of our gatherings. And um, we just so look forward to welcoming one another uh, radically indiscriminately. We have no standards at the table with Jesus. And then uh, the first week of Lent, which is right around the corner, this coming Thursday and Sunday, we'll also offer um, ashes to be imposed on your forehead, if you'd like that. You certainly don't have to. Now, there are some of you in the room who are liturgically sophisticated, and I know you're concerned right now because Wednesday is the day for the ashes, right? And you're realizing that if you do it on Thursday or Sunday, you might go out afterwards for dinner on Thursday or lunch on Sunday, and other people are going to see how unliturgically sophisticated we are because we did it on the wrong day. That's great. You just tell them we're a little weird at South Bend City Church. Like, own it, right? Like, like just go right into it, and it'll be wonderful. It'll be a testament to our peculiarity as a community. But I wanted to let you know that next week, and we'll talk much more next week about the meaning of that um, very sacred 
uh, experience, uh, but ashes will be a part of the way that we get into the season. Eucharist will be a part of the way that we walk through the season. And these practices, I hope, will be some gift to all of us who are waking up and realizing that um, holy is a word that we have to get our hands on and open ourselves to. And we'll ask Jesus to teach us uh, how to do that in this season. Now, before we go, I just have one more uh, word. It's a quote from a book that uh, has been really helpful to me. Uh, the priest's name is Ronald Rollheiser, and he's written a book called The Holy Longing. And uh, I was re- revisiting the book as I was preparing for all this. And I, guys, I got like two pages in, and I almost had to like, put the book down because it was so spicy. You know what I mean? It was like, whoo! There's like some heat coming through those pages. And uh, I wanted to share this with you because I think it's a little taste of what we're going to get to. Uh, throughout uh, this conversation on holiness and some of the practices that we will engage. So let me share this with you, and then I'll pray for you, and we'll be on our way. Rollheiser says, at the center of our lives lies a fiery energy, a perpetual disquiet, a lingering loneliness, an inchoate ache for something we can never quite name. Devoid of any transcendent perspective, we can only understand this energy as a blind, erotic, high-voltage fire within us. But this can also be understood in a very different perspective. It's inside Christianity, Judaism, and all major religions, this fiery energy is not simply seen as a blind, erotic, wild, promiscuous force. It has a very clear intent and a monogamous focus. Namely, it is a sacred fire, a holy longing, which directs us forever toward God. Woo! (laughs) It's pretty good, right? I think that's a little taste of what we're going to be getting at together in the next few weeks. Are you excited? Yeah, good. I am too. Uh, If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Let's pray. Loving God, holy God, uh, we thank you for the mysteries that you have drawn us into. That when we are awake, we have some sense of the wide open expanse within which we are living our lives. It's bigger than the physical place where we find ourselves, it's bigger than the details of our biography. It's bigger than our struggles today. It's bigger than what other people have said about us. Uh, It's your very life, and you have called us into it. Uh, We trust that there is love at the center of that life. It's not just a sentimental love or an affectionate love. It is a deep and abiding sacrificial love, uh, which would give everything for us that you somehow desire us to be a part of your life, and so we thank you. Pray for this Lenten season that um, through this conversation around holiness and through these practices that we would find ourselves arriving at Holy Week with some greater, deeper sense of the holy, Uh, the holy in you and the holy in us and the holy in our neighbors and the holiness of this time that calls us toward that week. I pray that when we come to Good Friday, and remember um, the life of Jesus given for the world, that we would find ourselves present within that story, um, receiving the love that you give, but also becoming broken open conduits for that love into the world. I pray that when we get to Easter and the joy of the resurrection, 
that we would know that it's not um, just some fickle little fantasy, but that it's a revelation of the deepest truths about reality. Uh, I pray for those who uh, will find this season um, cold or difficult or frustrating or flat. I pray that have a sense of um, the joy and the delight in just even trying, even on the days when we don't feel it. I pray for those of us who will feel invigorated and awakened And I just pray that we would be able to trust the joy of that. I thank you for this church community. Thank you for the wisdom of this season. And I thank you that you have called us holy. And I pray these things through Christ. And we all said, amen. Amen. May grace and peace be with you. Love you guys. See you next week.